Hello and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Twice a month, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. I'm Dr. Stacy Sainer, and I'd like to introduce Dr. Russ Farmer, who is an associate professor in surgery, an assistant dean for clinical skills, and the medical director of the Paris Simulation Center. Welcome, Dr. Farmer. Hello. Thanks for having me. Our appetizer... Today we are going to talk about health professions education and the HPE program we have here at the University of Louisville. So, Dr. Farmer, how much formal education have you had? I mean, you're a teacher. You teach surgeons, medical students. Before the HPE program, I had had none. I think that's probably common, unfortunately, for most of the physicians that are teaching physicians and physicians-to-be. Most of them don't have any formal training as to how to be a teacher. We got lots of training as to how to take care of patients, probably more of that than we want. But at the same time, all of our training how to be teachers is done much more by osmosis than intentional learning about how to be a teacher. For health professions, we focus so much on this formalized training. You could never say, well, I just saw someone doing a surgery, so I thought I could do it too. We formalize every step of this process and make sure that you're trained with a certain number of years, certain competencies that you can achieve, but we don't necessarily think about that level of rigor when we think about teaching and education. But maybe we should, right? When you think about the people that are doing the instruction, there's been very little to no work actually done in terms of competencies for them. And there, there's right. some investigational things that have been done at a few one-off centers, but the majority of the people that are kind of establishing the benchmarks for this type of education don't really have any benchmarks of their own other than anecdotally being proclaimed an expert or holding a board certificate. The vast majority of people in America that are practicing any form of medicine hold a certificate from some sort of board that doesn't necessarily make them an excellent medical educator. The irony of that is that they all call themselves Dr. Smith or Dr. Farmer, Dr. Rabelais, whatever, but the term doctor actually comes from a proto-French word, which means to teach. And I won't butcher the proto-French by attempting to pronounce (laughs) it on a podcast. To say that you have a natural role in education as a physician and as a doctor, I think is one of the most important things that people overlook. The majority of time you spend with your patients, in my case, preoperatively or post-op, in the clinic with them or on the patient ward is actually educating them about what you're going to do to treat their disease, educating them about the nature of their disease and how they're going to manage it with daily glucose checks and insulin or what have you. It's natural for someone as a physician to be a teacher, but it's much more natural for them to teach their own patients than it is for them to think in a metacognitive level about how they're teaching their patients or teaching other learners. So, Laura, you mentioned teacher competencies, that there's this rigor around training to be a surgeon, but maybe less rigor, maybe no rigor, around training to be a teacher, and that there are certain skills and approaches, and it implies that there is a science behind learning, and that that has evolved over this past, certainly, 30 years or so. So, Stacy, two things. Tell us about learning science and what's happened, basically, and 
Russ has mentioned HPE, but I don't think we've defined HPE. So let's make sure the audience knows what that is. With that, I could say, so our main course for today is to really discuss HPE, which is Health Professions Education. Learning science, let's start there for a second. Learning science is real. Yes, there is a science to learning. Yes, it is peer-reviewed, studied. There is both qualitative data and quantitative data out there that can show that there are best practices when we work with learners, whether that is an undergraduate, a graduate student, professional students, such as our medical students and dental students, and our postgraduate trainees, fellows and residents. So there is a science. A lot of that has been developed with cognitive scientists, most of them in the fields of psychology, and they have looked at the best ways to help learners not only remember content, but to actually use their content to be able to analyze and evaluate, to utilize reflective activities where they're metacognition. So I'm throwing out a bunch of words out here that people may or may not be aware of. I just want you to know it's real. So the health professions education program that Russ participated in, tell us a bit about how that's structured, what kind of course Sure, work sure. gets done. How long does it take? Just some oh, practical nuts and bolts stuff. about what's in there and how long does it take to get through it? First, there is the graduate certificate program. You either need to be enrolled in a master's program or already have a master's or terminal degree in order to take the certificate. That program is four courses and those courses are currently in a accelerated hybrid format, which means there are eight week courses. You can take the entire sequence in one calendar year. And the four courses are a foundations course or just a, an introduction to teaching and learning in health professions. There is also a curriculum design course there is the instructional strategies course, utilize different strategies to help their learners learn. And then we have a capstone, which is really all about evidence-based practice. And Laura here, she is the one who actually teaches the capstone course. So I would love for you to describe that one because I love that course. Sure. So the, the capstone course is really focusing on pooling in all of the lessons learned from the first three courses and applying them to evaluating instruction and thinking about extending those skills to educational research. Health professions education faculty maybe don't envision themselves as being researchers, especially not educational researchers, but they're already doing it. So there's a good opportunity there to create scholarship from activities they're already doing. So maybe it'd be helpful to get some specifics, some granularity to exactly what kind of practical things do you teach people in this course that's different than you giving a lecture to 50 people and hoping they digest something from it. So let's do some of the practical things okay. that, that you teach. And maybe, Russ, yeah. since you've already been through it, yeah. what practical things do you do that they taught you in this course? I think one of my favorite ones is the concept of interleave practice. What I was always taught is that you sit down, learn the one thing until you've mastered it, and you've gone on the next thing until you've mastered that. You know, we love doing lots of different operations for people. What we don't do is we don't take people and only have them do 50 lap gallbladders in a month, and then you're done learning about lap gallbladders, and you go on to do lap colons. It actually behooves the learner to do one lap gallbladder and then go do something else, like a lap appendix or some other form of surgery, and then come back a week later and do 
a different version of the lap gallbladder or a similar version of it with the same teacher, but it's a different patient. So that that way, the person who's trying to learn how to do that operation has had a chance to process it, has had a chance to consolidate that knowledge and really understand it from multiple different angles so that when they come back to do that surgical education form of practice, they're actually approaching it from a much more elevated angle than they were three to five days prior. We use that in curricular design all the time, not just in surgical curriculum. We use it in the entirety of the medical education curriculum. It's specifically designed for things like interleave practice to take advantage of the fact that we know that by doing that, you're going to have a better educational experience. I think, too, that one of the benefits of the HPE program is it's really geared toward teaching and learning with clinical students. There's a lot of overlap, especially in the different health profession schools, maybe the preclinical years. There's a lot of overlap that we can pull from non-clinical studies and non-clinical learning science. But really gearing this program toward thinking about clinical settings, I think, is helpful for our faculty learners, our faculty participants in this program. Russ, when you are on the wards or in the OR, what are some things that you have taken away from HPE that you utilize now? I was able to successfully take a course that I developed through HPE and brought it from conception into fruition. And actually all of our surgical learners are going through that course now. And not only is that course that's designed around hands-on learning a lot of the stuff that Laura was talking about, it was designed with specific concepts I learned during HPE. Not only am I able to look at things like interleave practice and consolidation and prediction and all these sort of things that I know are better for learning science and retention, I was also able to look at things like syllabus creation, research around this particular course. So that way I'm able to build out my own scholarship around health professions education through the development of this course and its implementation and gathering data on how my students are doing. And it's kind of a a holistic package for people that want to look at health professions education and create something from nothing. So Russ, you've talked about the things you learned that you've applied almost more at a system level in course design and syllabus creation, and I'm sure you're using that in the simulation center as well. So when you're making rounds with residents or residents and students, are there some specific techniques that you've learned to apply in that clinical scenario where we do most of our teaching? Because most of us are not in classrooms teaching. We're on the wards taking care of patients and teaching in the course of that. So are there some specific things you could share with the group about that aspect of your teaching? One of the things that I learned at the very outset and that stuck with me was the average time allotted to a learner to answer a question uh, of clinical importance, which I think, if I remember right, was somewhere between two to three seconds. Is that right? It's less. It's 1.9. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. Point being that allowing people to actually have time to think about the answers to a question will not only help them make connections between the different things that they've learned, but also instill confidence in them as learners because they actually have the answer somewhere up there. If you're patient enough to let them get to it, the better off they're going to be. I think what's interesting is a lot of strategies like that are not difficult to implement. It seems like a lot of the feedback we get from HPE faculty are that we just didn't know. This isn't how I was taught. So when they're modeling how faculty taught them years or decades ago, they didn't know that there were better ways to do it. 
when people are thinking about joining the HPE program, one of the main things I think is like HPE can't hurt you. Yeah. It's, it's not, <laughs> you know, it doesn't necessarily take this major overhaul of skills. It's more just being informed of this is the logical step. This is what the evidence shows would be a better set of skills to use with your learners. We spend a lot of time being trained as physicians and surgeons to do our work and a lot of time continuing our education throughout our career. We must invest in the learning science. If part of our job is to be an educator and all the faculty at the Health Science Center are all have an education role, then we must invest in learning science on our own or through courses like this to try and help us bring along those skills that we just never really were exposed to. I think one of the things that gives me most pause is someone who's been through this particular type of study and has become passionate about it over the past several years. When you look at just the raw data about the number of medical educators that are out there and the rapid expansion of the number of medical education environments. For example, the number of medical schools that have opened over the past 10 to 15 years, there's an explosive growth in the number of medical schools in the United States. That's another podcast, but there's no more residency slots. We'll talk about that on another <laughs> one. But the idea that somehow we produced, as if from nowhere overnight, a number of um, experienced, thoughtful medical educators uh, is enough to, to give me a little bit of pause. I'd like to ask you one other question, Russ, before we get around to summarizing. Do you think that the HPE program has impacted your learners, the ones that you have taught? Oh, of course. I mean, I think that now I can't go into an educational situation where I don't have this knowledge as a background where I'm not kind of constantly referring back to the things that I've learned. It's almost I'm giving myself a grade on the quality of my teaching as I'm going through <laughs> it. You know, an Obi-Wan or a Yoda in the back of their head talking about them as they're going throughout the course of their day. It's not infrequently that I'll be instructing residents or students and I hear the voice of Laura Weingartner chiming back, that's not the way to do it, you know. <laughs> so do it better. Yeah, it, she sounds nothing like that, but that's, yeah. yeah. So it's so important because for a long time, after I gave a talk or went on rounds and pontificated with residents and students, the question that I asked myself was, how did I do? How did I do? <laughs> I might even ask others, how do you think I did? I don't Wrong care. focus, right? Yeah, it, it's care. not about me, right? No, it's no. about them. And so it gets to your question, Stacy. How did the learners do? How did their behavior change? How did their skills increase? How did their knowledge increase as a result of this interaction? And hopefully, we're, we're getting to a point where people recognize that it's not about you simply telling them stuff. It's about getting them to engage with the content in a meaningful way. And that's what HPE starts to get you involved in and understanding of so that you can be better at education, realizing it's all about what the learner gets out of it, not what you delivered. You know, and I think we focus so much with, with learners right now about self-directed learning and how do we make sure that health professions students are continuing to learn about their specialty you know, after they finish their program. And this should really be considered part of that. You know, it's not just about the, the technical skills or about your specialty, the knowledge content related to your specialty. It's about how, how are you teaching in your area as well. So I feel like health professions education is really just one slice of this continuing education that we should be focusing on. And, you know, we talked earlier about not treating education with that same level of rigor. For faculty that are currently practicing, the HPE program can really help 
achieve that. So Stacy, what about faculty who are unable to commit the time and resources to take the HPE course? Are there other things that have been put in play that they have access to that might help with becoming better at teaching and learning and learning science and how to do this work better, but they're just unable to commit the time like Russ has committed? We have lots of resources online. We've got Blackboard. We also have lots of great ways for you to learn about learning science, whether it is joining a reading circle when we're talking about Make It Stick or doing your own self-directed learning with modules that we've created around some of these topics. All right. What's for dessert, Laura? Well, let's give a broad invitation to anyone listening out here who wants to join HPE this upcoming spring. I think that would be a great idea. It is really easy. You can contact me. I can uh, help you maneuver the process of dealing with graduate school and all of those things because it is a real class with the university. Also, I would love to bring up we are working on online versions of these courses. We are going to have outward facing programming. Anybody out there who's not part of University of Louisville will be able to take part in our HPE program. And the master's is coming. Tell me a little bit more about the master's program. Well, we uh, have developed a master's in health professions education, and it is a 33-hour program. There will be 15 hours that are HPE-specific, which include the certificate courses. So if you think you're double-dipping, apparently the College of Education doesn't. So you get to use those 12 hours from the certificate to add to the master's, and then there are 15 hours in higher ed administration, and then there's a three-hour practicum, which means you will be doing a a project with me as your uh, supervising faculty. So as a faculty member, I know that not only am I worried about time, but I am cost conscious. What does this cost (laughs) me personally, uh, financially, out of my back pocket? Because I remember going to college, and I know also that the cost of attending Higher education is skyrocketing at a constant rate. If you're a faculty member at UofL, you do get tuition remission. Or staff member. Or staff, absolutely. Staff, faculty, and staff. We all get tuition remission. Thank goodness. You really end up just having to pay your fees. So whatever those fees happen to be, it's minimal. So, and you can take up to eight credit hours per semester, and that is spring, summer, and fall. You know, one other thing to consider is if you're going up for promotion, certainly in the School of Medicine, and your area of excellence is supposed to be in teaching, then the Office of Faculty Affairs is recommending you give strong consideration to taking this certificate program as evidence of your sustained and continued interest in making yourself a better educator. So it would go a long way with the Promotion and Tenure Committee when they review your application to see evidence of a formal course like this. So that's another reason to do it. And we have many faculty who have a, an area of excellence that they want to be promoted on in education. So give that some consideration. And I think it's, it's important to highlight again, a lot of the skills that you're going to take away from the HPE program are directly applicable. You sit through a class one night and you can go apply these skills in your classroom or you know at the bedside the next day. The benefit is not going to be down the line. It's going to be tomorrow. Thanks, Dr. Farmer, for joining us today on Faculty Feed. Always a pleasure to be here. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be, as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. 
Join us next time for more. And come hungry. <laughs>